a year into it, I thought to myself, gosh, this was a ridiculous idea. They should never have funded this kind of idea. Uh, you know, I, I took from that that not all low-hanging fruit should be picked. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski. On today's H3 episode of the podcast, The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins, I'm so pleased to have Dr. Eric Strain. Hi, Eric. How are you? Hey, Kim. Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to have you. I know you and I have talked for lots of times over the past couple of years on very important things having to do with promotion and mentoring faculty wanted you to first start by telling people who you are and what you do here at Hopkins, and then lead us off into your um, habits and hacks. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me and uh, great to be on. And I'm a professor. I'm the Georgie Bigelow Professor of Psychiatry at Hopkins and been a professor for about 20 years now in the Department of Psychiatry at Hopkins. I lead a research group, the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit, or BPRU, which consists of 17 full-time faculty conducting research, mainly in addictions, although I like to say that what we do is we do rigorous research in setting up collegiality. I'm also the executive vice chair of psychiatry on the Bayview campus, and I wear some other hats in the Department of Psychiatry. Like a lot of people at Hopkins, I, I do research, but I also have administrative roles, and I teach, and I do clinical work as well. I see outpatients. I attend on an inpatient service. So, I kind of keep myself busy. It sounds like the the classic triple, quadruple threat that it's a lot of balls in the air all the time, and that's what, what we do so well. So thank you for everything you do for us. And what kinds of efficiencies or routines have you adopted personally that have made you so successful over the past couple decades? And also maybe what do you what do you tell junior faculty? What are you seeing that maybe the junior faculty folks listening out there might learn from? It's a it's a wide open question and certainly let's uh let's make it a dialogue. Yeah. As we're going along, I'm sure. I, I think it's hard to know where to start, but I think one thing I would say is that early on I did start to think about work-life balance. And of course, we all talk about that now and how do you achieve that? But I just remember early on uh, in my career, my wife works full-time. Uh, we have two young kids and, and and our lives are just going crazy. I mean, the kids would come home, we'd be scrambling to make dinner. Kids were hungry, laundry needed to be done, all that stuff. And I actually, a few months into my faculty position, I said, this isn't working. And I started leaving on Monday and Friday at three o'clock. And I think that's one of the great things about being in an academic setting is, you know, a lot of times you can do something like that in the sense that I just said, I'm leaving. And I'd pick the kids up from school. They were in pre-primary and I'd come home early and I'd start dinner and laundry. and, And it just sort of help to decompress the day. Now, what I did was I started going into the office on Saturday mornings when my wife was home. And that probably was, you know, maybe I shouldn't be home on Saturday mornings, but but I was racked by guilt that I wasn't at work after three o'clock on Monday and Friday. But it, it really did help me feel a sense of relief early in my career that I wasn't overlooking this. And I just 
I walked out at three o'clock, even though I knew there was stuff that I needed to do or I could do. It was just like, I need to leave. I need to do this because it was important. And, and I look back on that now, you know, my kids are in their mid to late twenties, those two older kids, but I feel like it was really a valuable and sort of centering thing for me and for my family. And, yeah. you know, I probably could have written some more papers early on. I probably could have gotten another grant in, but I think that was valuable. It's making me think two things. So the first thing is when you said, you know, well, maybe I should have been home on Saturday mornings. I'm thinking about the ages of children and certainly like preteens when kids want to sleep, seems like 20 hours a day, that they probably didn't even know you were gone on a Saturday morning unless they're having little kiddos, soccer practice and ballet and football and what whatnot. But what you're making me think on, on one side of my brain is that that work-life integration and the seasons of life will change and having that fluid ability to adapt to the changing responsibilities and, and seasons of our family is good that you were able to do that. The other side of my brain is thinking about is if I'm a faculty member and a busy clinician, maybe my eyes just kind of exploded out of my face when you said, I just left. And they're thinking, well, how in the world did he just leave? Are you kidding me? That If I just got up and left on a Monday, Friday at three o'clock, I can't imagine what my colleagues would say. How did he handle his clinic time? How was he charting, well, closing patient files? Um, how did how did that operationally work to simply say, I'm out of here? Yeah, no, I think it's a very, those are both great points. And I think, you know, it is sort of saying, I'm going to do this. And people might, you know, I, I mean, my clinics tend to be in the mornings when I was doing, you know, so I still have a clinic Friday mornings. And so Fridays were kind of crazy in the sense that I had to wrap up clinic, then take care of research things and then get out by three o'clock. There are those structural things that happen and that have to occur and you can't just do it overnight. I mean, it, it takes a little time to, to bake it in, in terms of what's going on. But, but I think the biggest obstruction is in my own was in my own head in the sense of you know gosh everybody else is still here at three o'clock working and people are going to see me walking out and know i'm leaving and it's sort of like saying to heck with that i mean (laughs) if somebody wants to talk to me about that that's fine as long as i'm getting done what i need to get done but let me let me morph this into a second point that i would make him if i could which is i think another thing i realized like in the first year or two was I figured out sort of the day to day where my sweet spots were in terms of getting work done. And one of the things that I realized is I'm a morning person. You know, there's morning people and there's evening people and I'm definitely a morning person and I can write much better early in the morning than, and by the time two o'clock gets around, I'm like, I got to pound a couple of Diet Cokes to kind of, you know, power me through the afternoon. Right. I often wake up at 5 a.m. and my fingers and my thoughts and my writing is so much better at 6 a.m. than at 2 or 3 Mm p.m. So leaving in the afternoons was not disadvantaging me relative to the cycle of the day that I came to realize was my most productive. I was leaving when you know, it's probably terrible to say this, but, you know, my kids were getting me when I was at my nadir <laughs> in terms of, you know, my bandwidth. 
um, on those days. And I was taking advantage because I was coming in early on those days. Right. And and likewise, when I would go back in on Saturday mornings, I would go in early mm-hmm. on Saturday mornings. So, and that brings up a third thing that actually has been relatively recent for me, but which I've realized, which is for years, I would fall into the habit of staying up late on Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday night, sleeping in on Saturday and Sunday morning somewhat, or sleeping less. And I'm really, in the last couple of years, gotten into this idea that I need to keep my sleep schedule the same mm. every day. Mm-hmm. So even on, you know, Saturday night or Sunday night or Friday night, I I go to bed around 9 or 9.30, which is the time I go to bed during the week. Mm-hmm. And I still get up early on Saturday or Sunday morning. But I think, you know, that's another strategy. And then, well, I can pause there, but there's well uh, something else I would just say. Yeah, hang on to that thought because, of, of course, I have to open my mouth and... and yammer here because I you're you're I'm exactly the same way my my friends make fun of me that they always say oh Kim I was going to call you and tell you about this show or that show but then I realized it was nine o'clock and you're already in bed and that's me as well and I think what gets to that is the self-awareness and then like for Mm -hmm. example in our our leadership courses that we in faculty development teach and anytime we work with faculty we really try to drive home the fundamental point of leadership programs, it starts with self-awareness and self-knowledge. And that's so important Mm -hmm. because you have to know yourself to better manage yourself. And then once you get that going, you you can better know other people and know how to manage those relationships. Because I think so many of us, especially when we're younger, we think that I ought to, should to, must be, and we have these these maybe mistaken assumptions about what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. Just like you alluded to or said earlier about you're a morning person. If your mentor was a late night night owl and you studied with her and that's how she worked or your mom and dad were morning people, we kind of feel like that's the way one must be, disregarding the fact that I'm a morning person and I'm trying to force myself into this night owl thing and I'm just not being efficient. Like you said, come afternoon, you're punked out. I'm the same way. I'm ready for a little, you know, cat nap. So that awareness of where your strengths, where our own strengths are and what our natural biorhythms and the circadian and figuring out when we are at our maximum peak and then structuring our day as best we can around those bursts of energy and when we are most focused to do writing in the morning and then in the afternoons do kind of mindless, monotonous work for people like us. So that to me is what popped into my head that is so important, especially for younger, early career faculty who maybe are still in that rhythm of school and training programs and other people dictating how they should work versus taking a look at what works best for me and then trend, you know, over overlay that with what, what works best for my family at, at in this stage. Absolutely. No, I, uh, I completely get it. And I think that, uh, let me also parenthetically note, I think that you're being a morning person makes, you know, that obviously you're a, a gifted and talented person because morning people are and, uh, um, <laughs> 
you know, I, I fully appreciate that, even you even more. But no, I mean, I've got a mentee right now, and we've talked about this early career person who is an evening person. And, you know, in my being aware now of her, you know, her having that quality. So, you know, when I suggest that we meet at 8 a.m., no you know, I know that's a mistake for her. Right. Uh, so, yeah, but... But let me also, there's something else I would say in terms of sort of that being aware of yourself and, and your rhythms and your strengths and, you know, um, those features. Uh, another thing I've, I've thought about, and, and I'm certainly not pushing this on anybody, but, but I realized as well early on, there were three things that kept me relatively centered as a person. One was not drinking alcohol to excess um, and being very careful about my alcohol use because Again, it would screw up my sleep, I realized, and everybody knows that or probably knows that. The second was having some regularity in an exercise program of some sort. And that was more sort of stress relieving. I mean, it's physical health, of course, but and as I've gotten older, I mean, that's even, it's not necessarily powerlifting or something like that. It can even be just, you know, going for a walk for 30 minutes or something in the, in the day or in the evening. And the third was going to church for me. And I think that related to sort of some, some need for a spiritual aspect and also for the community that it created. Because I do think, you know, I, I tell my wife all the time, I'm a, I'm a friendly misanthrope. I mean, I don't want to be around other people. But if I am with other people, I tend to be kind of uh, friendly with them. I, I don't think. <laughs> not, I tend yeah, to be yeah, I'm not <laughs> Yeah, I'm not grumpy. And going to church each week caused me to be around people who likewise were generally friendly. And, and it sort of also kept, kept some balance in my life in terms of, you know, pausing for an hour and thinking about, you know, more than just getting a grant application in or something like that, to get outside my own sort of needs and wants. So those three things, being careful. I don't abstain from alcohol. I mean, I I drink a beer at an Orioles game or something, you know, Um, but being very careful about my alcohol use, exercising with some regularity, being engaged in something that got me tapped into my sort of other things besides myself and being aware of sort of a bigger purpose and meaning to the world and in a community setting were were helpful for me. Uh, I I'm with you on that. Amen. You're preaching to the choir on the the faith thing. I I couldn't do anything without without my faith. Nothing. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit more about you know through your career see, seeing these early career faculty? Have you seen any? trends or patterns or there have been some silver linings you know after all the awfulness of 2020 and i think a lot of the self-reflection has has been really front and center in, in my conversations with people but do you have any observations dr strain about early career faculty and and maybe advice you would have of be careful about i mean in addition to the things you've obviously talked about but be careful or you're worried about or you think about or keeping you up at night. What kind of special things can we um, impart to early career folks out there? Uh, yeah, I don't, you mean in, in specifically in the current climate of COVID and social unrest and things like that? Is that 
Yeah. It or just more generally. Well, e- either way. I mean, I, I think generally or more specific about the current times. You know, I've just been writing a, um, well, we have a here at Hopkins a, a task force that's been looking at the impact of COVID on faculty careers. And so I'm just reflecting on the introduction that was my assignment to write. And, you know, we, we think about the fact that COVID has certainly done, a, you know, changed and upended a lot of things for faculty. But it's also amplified a lot of existing challenges. You know, funding has never been more difficult and the increased complexity with submitting a grant application and all the, all the paperwork. And then you think about uploading manuscripts for crying out loud. To me, that's like a a half a day job to, to go to the, these journal, journal websites and upload the thing. It's, you feel like you're doing all the editing for them, um, and doing all that work. That's, it's not trivial the amount of administrative tasks that faculty have to do. So these problems have been around for a long time with, you know, ep- epic, you know, electronic health records and RVUs and grants and papers and teaching. And, and now you just throw on top of it. A global pandemic. So I'm thinking of, you know, the existing problems. And then you talk about salaries that, you know, Hopkins and our, our woefully inadequate salaries. There have been a lot of problems and challenges. And, you know, a lot of us are worried about COVID kind of really kicking us in the pants and our future generation of investigators. So I guess I'm just unfortunately unloading on you what I, what's been on my mind a lot, you know, last night writing this introduction and just curious about what you're seeing in, in your department in psychiatry and working with all the faculty that you mentor. Yeah, no, that's, that's very helpful. And, uh, I, uh, I feel for you in terms of, you know, you're, you're, uh, considering all this and the impact of it. I think, you know, one of the thoughts that comes to mind is mentorship. And I think a lot about mentorship in the sense that, uh, you know, both process and content mentorship. And I think it's been interesting over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, because a lot of my mentoring has shifted away from content to process mentoring with junior faculty, which, which I think makes sense given my sort of role. You know, one of the things, and so I think the, the message would be, you know, finding a mentor that works for you is so critical. And, you know, by way of example, just something that flashed through my head as you were talking is, I tell all my junior faculty that I mentor, regardless of whether I'm meeting with them weekly or monthly or quarterly or semi-annually, whatever, you know, I tell them people are at Hopkins are going to ask you to do things, especially the clinicians. You know, they're going to ask you to be on committees or to interview applicants for something or, you know, uh, whatever, uh, do some, you know, side clinical thing on a temporary basis. And I tell them, and a lot of these things are going to be very attractive to you. And what you have to tell them is you, but some of them aren't, some of them you aren't going to want to do it. I say, regardless, what you are to tell the person is that sounds really interesting and I'm very intrigued, but before I can agree to do anything, I have to go to Eric Strain and ask him if it's okay to do it. (laughs) And then you come to me and I'll tell you, no, you can't do that. That's going to distract you from what you need to be doing, your core foci. And then you go back to them and say, "Um, listen, I really wanted to do it, but Eric told me I couldn't. (laughs) And he said, if you've got a problem, to go talk to Eric. Right. It buys you some physical space and some some time to think without, like you said, being 
making an impulsive decision that, oh, that sounds so good, but it's going to really pull you off course. I love that you've, you volunteer yeah. yourself to be the sacrificial lamb for the faculty. Well, and guess how many times I've had another senior faculty come to me and say, hey, I want to talk to you about, you know, this thing I, I wanted this junior person to do. Zero. Nobody's ever, you know, <laughs> nobody ever comes to me and says, hey, I want to push back on this. Right, of course. Um, but, you know, junior, so I think, I think that goes back to, you know, though the idea that you've got to, you got to find a mentor and you've got to find somebody who's going to be your, your wingman or wingwoman and protect you and, uh, kind of keep you reeled back in. Cause it's so easy to get distracted with other things. Um, and, uh, you know, and mentor, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you could do like, a lot of podcasts about mentorship and the qualities of mentorship and stuff. But, you know, um, I think it's really key. I think we as an institution need to do to, to be vigilant to making sure that we've got good mentoring plans in place That's right. for junior faculty who are coming on. And I think the dilemma is that our response to that too often is, well, we're going to develop a new form or a new procedure or something like that. And at the end of the day, those aren't the things that create good mentors. Good mentors are people who are committed to it, who are good at it. And we need to just say, gee, this person's really good at mentoring, like George Bigelow, who got the Dean's Mentoring Award a couple of years ago. This is somebody who's really gifted at this, and we need to make sure that we keep them, we nurture them, we reward them for what All they're right. doing. Re I like what you just anyway, said. I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, that's I, I love the soapbox. I love the mentoring soapbox. That it's you're exactly right. There's they're good people, and that there are if you think about it, there are a few really good gems of mentors, but then the number of mentees outweighs them. And then there's this whole imbalance of so many mentees clamoring for good mentors and the really good ones are overwhelmed, overloaded. They too have the same responsibility of generating income and seeing patients and serving on committees and teaching and educating. And then if they're not acknowledged, that work, that incredibly valuable work of mentoring, not acknowledged, rewarded, protected, it becomes this, you know, this game where you, the return on investment at some point is like it's not, it's, um, can be hurtful to the mentor. So there's always that delicate balance of trying to find, um, find that balance. And then I, I feel badly for not only early career faculty who are looking for that mentor, and, that, and that's when we also kind of emphasize you need a team of mentors. You know, the, don't put all your eggs in the one mentor basket. So you mentioned earlier, Eric, you know, the content mentor, the process mentor, peer mentors, promotions mentor, my writing mentor, my, my work-life engagement mentor. So we can have teams of people who are, who can add wisdom and neutral advice and a, a third set of eyes on things when things get crazy. I think the team, a diverse team of mentors can help kind of carry that burden. So you're not all on one mentor. And so I think that helps the mentor as well as the mentee knowing that, that there's a, a lift. People are lifting the mentee. A lot of hands are lifting the mentee, not just that one mentor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I, uh, 
I think there's a lot to that. And, and I think as well, and I mean, people have written about this, that, you know, what you find is you find that you're gravitating towards certain people more than other people as your mentor, that there's a fit there. And, and the fit may not be related to content expertise necessarily, right. even though you initially thought that's why you were seeking out that person. Yeah. And then the mentorship yeah. relationship, the relationship grows. And if it's a transformational relationship that's authentic, that it will grow with you over the season of your academic career, just like we all grow and all of our relationships grow. Some relationships may break up, some may evolve and transition from, as you said, the content expert. And now you've written that grant and written those papers. And now you've truly developed an authentic friendly relationship and now you're more collegial and, and collaborators and now it's more it's it's moved into a different phase of a mentoring relationship so that's truly a transformational authentic relationship that uh, can withstand the whole the whole career continuum because we will change and and our opportunities and our interests and as we take on different responsibilities, will grow and, and evolve into wanting different mentors for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. But there were a couple of other thoughts I had that uh, if I could kind of pivot. One is, I would say, one of the things that, that I realized probably about 10 years into my career was, as a faculty member, was um, that I should do things that I wanted to do. And specifically, the, the what brought this home was there was a, a request for applications for grants that was a really goofy idea at the time, but it looked like such an easy way to get an R01. Uh, and I already had an R01 at that time, but I just couldn't pass it by. And I submitted something and it did well and it got funded. And I spent four years doing something that I, a year into it, I thought to myself, gosh, this was a ridiculous idea. They should never have funded this kind of idea. And, but now I'm into it. I've got the money. I've got the staff. I've got the project going. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to do this again because I've wasted time, effort, bandwidth, money as well on something that's really not, you know, some, it's not something that I really feel good about. It's not gotten me excited. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to do things that I want to do. And obviously, I mean, if you're, if you're into a situation where, you know, you, you've got to find a dollar to cover your salary and stuff like that, you, you get desperate. But, but, you know, by and large, I think, uh, you know, I, t I took from that that not all low hanging fruit should be picked. And, and I think kind of hand in hand with that, I've been thinking a lot lately about meaning and purpose and that, you know, we have to have meaning and purpose in our lives. I think a lot of us in academic settings have that, but, but you need to kind of keep yourself focused on that. Or I need to for myself, uh, right. I should say, right. that I need to feel like I'm doing something that's got meaning and purpose to it, um, that I'm not simply, you know, trying to cover the budget or, you know, get my epic notes done or something like that. That's good. I think ending on meaning and purpose is, is perfect because I was also just thinking about late career faculty members and how, as we start thinking about the, the tail end of our careers, how making that transition to the next step of 
partial retirement? What's the next chapter of my life going to look like? That's the question then. Oh my gosh, if I'm not a professor, if I'm not a clinician, if I'm not a surgeon, who am I? What am I? What what do I do? What What is my purpose and meaning and value? So that question of who am I and why am I here, I think is just the question that from the beginning all the way into the end. So I think I love how you um, keep that front and center, that we do the things we love. And the things we love are usually the things that we're gifted to do, that it's in our heart for a reason. So it just makes perfect sense to align what we love to do with as as much of our daily lives as we can manage doing those things we love. Otherwise, we'll run the risk of of burning out if we uh, keep living like we're on fire, especially living like on fire, doing things we don't like. It's, you know, a recipe for disaster. So I think that is a wonderful way to end And Dr. Eric Strain, I really thank you, folks. I hope you have uh, learned a lot from our friendly misanthrope, Dr. Eric Strain here at Hopkins. And um, I'll let you have the final word, Eric. Well, no, Kim, uh, I just, well, thanks. I want to thank you. I want to thank the the listeners of this, uh, these podcasts. I've listened to a few of them. They're they're wonderful to hear. And uh, I hope this has been valuable. Uh, Go out. Find meaning and purpose, structure your days as are best for you, and uh, have a wonderful rest of your day, Kim. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Tune in to the Faculty Factory Podcast next time. Bye now. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.